As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now, we get really lucky. Jan Hatzius, Chief Economist at Goldman Sachs. Jan, let's talk about it. China, GDP forecast over at Goldman now 3% for the year. Europe, base case for pretty much everybody. They enter recession. Jan, where on earth does that leave the U.S. economy? I think the U.S. doesn't have quite the same degree of headwinds as, as both China and Europe. In China, obviously, you have zero COVID policy and the property market downturn, which is a multi-year development. In Europe, you've got the gas issue. There's nothing quite to the same degree that we have in the US, but it's going to be a slow growth environment, below trend. The Fed wants below trend. That's why financial conditions are where they are, because the Fed's tightening pretty aggressively. And you've got the fiscal drag. So plenty of headwinds for sure, but I don't think it's quite as bad as in as in China or the Euro area. How do you expect Chairman Powell to navigate that? Yeah, on this Friday? I think he'll be balancing between two things. One, I think he will lay out a case, as he did at the last press conference, as they did in the minutes, for slowing the pace of increases. We had 275 basis point moves. Uh, our expectation would be, barring significant data surprises, that the September move is 50. I think he'll, he'll you know, I don't think he'll be specific about the number. But I do think he'll be saying, you know, there is a risk of over-tightening and therefore uh, it makes sense to go a little bit more slowly than these really outsized increases. But at the same time, he'll, he'll make, make clear that the job is not yet done. Inflation is way too high. They're very committed to bringing inflation back down to 2% or, or thereabouts. So I think it will be a balancing act. Yeah, and uh, there's a mix here of themes, and one of them is what we just saw from Macy's, where Bloomingdale's and the haves do well, and Macy's and the have-nots really are struggling. Or it can be John Taylor of Stanford visiting with Bloomberg in the last 24 hours, saying sustain, sustain, sustain a higher-yield environment. Are we getting our time, our x-axis wrong right now? Do we need to look out two years, three years, or five years of elevated inflation? I think a year from now or two years from now, inflation will be much lower because there are some 
uh, you know, some some drivers. I mean, commodity prices are are clear. The goods sector in general, I do think that's going to come off a lot. The risk is more on the services side, where we've seen less of an indication that things are slowing, especially rents are still growing very quickly. So I think that's still going to be well above normal, you know, into 2023 and maybe even maybe even beyond. So I, I do think that there, there are going to be improvements, but not everywhere. Should we have a more nominal GDP, nominal inflation analysis witness the haves and the have-nots? The have-nots are getting crushed minute by minute. Should we switch to a more nominal study? Well, I think what you're suggesting is that we look at the distribution of incomes and, and spending, and you clearly see some big big differences there. And I think, you know, Macy's versus Nordstrom's is a good example. You can look at inc- real income at the top end, at the bottom end of the income distribution. There's been a much bigger pullback at the bottom end, in part because the fiscal support was so much more important there, and that's come off, and in part because at the bottom end, you see more of an impact from gas prices and mm-hmm. inflation generally. At the margin, the drop in gas prices obviously is helping somewhat more at the bottom end, but uh, that's only a small part of the previous mm-hmm. deterioration. There is, however, Jan, at least with physical goods, a bit of a disinflationary pressure, whether it comes to inventories or some of the commodity prices that have come off. Is it enough to achieve a soft landing? Have you actually improved some of your forecasts about what the Fed has to do and the outcome in the U.S. economy? I, I think it's certainly helpful, and we've you know, continued to be in the softish landing camp um, in part because of the expectation that some of the uh, goods pressure, pressures would abate. The most important factor, though, is adjustment in the labor market. That's something that they need to pull off. And I think we've seen some encouraging indicators, in particular, the 1.1 million decline in job openings that we've seen in the JOLTS data, which is probably still underway. We'll probably see some further significant declines there. That is starting to bring the labor market into better balance. Still early days. We still have a large gap between uh, between jobs and workers, but at least we're moving in the right direction there. And I think that's going to be key to sustain it. Do you think that the market right now is not reflecting what still has to be done, though, from the Federal Reserve in order to achieve that? And this is something that we've heard about throughout the morning. The theme of the day has been that stocks need to wake up to it. That is the bearish tilt. Do you agree with that, that right now they are not accounting for the pain? I think the terminal rate pricing doesn't look too low. I mean, it's sort of three, you know, three and a half or a little bit more. I think that that is sufficient relative to to our forecast, Uh, maybe even a little bit more than sufficient. Where I would disagree more with market pricing is the pricing for significant rate cuts. I think that, you know, certainly could happen and would happen if you went into a recession. But I think in a slow growth environment where the Fed is trying to squeeze inflation lower, I think they'd be very resistant to to rate cuts. So I I do think that those cuts are probably somewhat excessive from a market pricing perspective. It's a raise and hold strategy, in the words of San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly. Jan, have you got any idea of how you think they will hold rates at that kind of level? For how long? Is it too early, too premature to have that conversation? Oh, I think it could be a couple of years. I mean, really? if you get to the you get to the you know mid threes or or maybe even a little bit higher, and then then you stay there. 
because I think while inflation will look a lot better a year from now, I think it'll still be significantly above the target. And ultimately, they do want to get uh, back down to pretty close to 2%. Yeah, and that is totally out of consensus. How much pushback do you get from clients when you bring that up? I think it's away from market pricing. I don't know if it's well, as out of consensus in terms of what forecasters are right. saying. I think there are quite a lot of forecasters and Fed officials. I mean, you you just mentioned uh, President right. Daly, Fed officials who are saying that this is a reasonable baseline. John, squeeze one more question in here because the bottom line here is simple. This is the theme of Jackson Hole. This well, I think this is, this is the difficulty. This is the theme. Jan, 3.5% if you're going to hold rates at that kind of level, and it could be, a stress you said could be, a couple of years. Where does a soft landing fit in to that kind of profile, that kind of rates profile? Well, I think that is a soft landing kind of uh, kind of assumption. If it wasn't a soft landing, if you went into a recession, then I think you would get cuts. But if growth stays at 1%, 1.5%, labor market continues to adjust, inflation gradually comes down, and the Fed in that environment keeps the funds rate relatively high, you know, I think that is a soft landing. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I think we'll continue this conversation. Jan Hans is a Goldman. Jan, great to catch up, sir. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Exceptionally strong set of conversations today. Jan Hatzis of Goldman Sachs joining us. And we continue strong now with Stephen Rusciuto. To say he's chief U.S. economist at Mizzou Securities, barely describes their desk. With Dominic Constant, Stephen Rusciuto folds in a massive macro view, including a calculus of GDP in America. Steve Rusciuto, when you talk to Dominic and the two of you get together, are we in recession? Uh, the NBER will not classify it a recession. To me, you know, two quarters of consecutive negative GDP reports, you know, implies you're in a recession. Uh, the problem for people is going to be that this is going to be a very shallow, very long recession. It's not going to be the typical recessionary mm -hmm. environment uh, that we've seen um, in since 1990, which were credit cycles, nor is it going to be the typical inflation cycle. Uh, that we'd experienced in the post-war period up to the 1990s. It's a very, very different cycle. It's a long, shallow cycle. Right. Well, within that, and this has been the theme for the day, Steve Rusciuto, uh, 
if, if you have a long, shallow cycle, does that mean the real message from Powell at Jackson Hole will be a more sustained view of interest rate strategy and not the foolishness of the when the rates come down? Oh, that's exactly been our call all along in here, that we were basically looking at a dynamic of a pause, not a pivot. Uh, the question that we're still debating, is it 4% or is it something north of 4%? I think we have to get to at least 4%. And last time I was on, we were talking about it. We were pricing 3.5%. Now we're pricing something in between the 35 and the 4 uh, I think we'll get to the 4 and you know, hopefully that will be the end, but it may not be the end of this scenario. This is the raise and hold debate, Steve. We caught up with Jan Hatches of Goldman. Take a listen to what he had to say. Where I would disagree more with market pricing is the pricing for significant rate cuts. I think it could be a couple of years. I mean, really? if you get to the you get to the you know mid threes or or maybe even a little bit higher, and then then you stay there, because I think while inflation will look a lot better a year from now, I think it'll still be significantly above the target. Race to what and hold for how long? Race to three, three and a half percent and hold for a couple of years, Steve. What do you think of that? Well, I, I think we're going to keep on moving higher than that. I don't think three and a half is the top, uh, nor do I think necessarily we're going to hold it for several years. I think we're, there's clearly an argument to be made that we're going to hold it through 2023. But where we go in 2024 is a very, very different um, animal altogether, because you have to look at what's happening in the currency and you have to look at what's happening with supply chain related issues. And then you have to look at the demographics in the labor market environment. And it's this tug of war that we're going to see from a stronger currency supply chains easing up versus the wage-related pressures that are being dominated by the demographic issues, in particular, the reduction in the number of workers from the millennials to the Generation Z, which is now entering the labor force. So we might wind up in an environment where the Federal Reserve has to sustain higher rates on a longer basis than we've seen in here for quite some time. But again, what the starting point is, is still an open book. What's the advantage, Stephen, for the Fed raising rates beyond three and a half percent? What's the end target and why, especially if they plan to then take them down to something lower over a longer term? Well, again, do they plan to take it down to something lower over the longer term? The, the real question is, how does this labor market dynamic play out? You can make a very, very strong demographic argument that the labor market stays tight throughout the entire period in here, uh, and therefore you are in a sustained higher level uh, of interest rates going forward. Uh, the question always is going to be, what level of rates will that be sustained at? But a quick return back to the near zero interest rate environment uh, that we've been anticipating is going, or that people have been somewhat anticipating, is going to require some kind of credit event to unfold in the economy. And when you look at the underlying credit quality of the economy in general, there are some pockets where we are concerned. But in aggregate, the balance sheets are still very, very healthy. So what is your uh, top Fed rate that you're kind of penciling in here? How has that evolved over the past few months? Well, it's evolved a lot, I mean, over the entire period of, of 2022. Uh, but, but I do think 4% is the near-term target. Um, and I think once we get to 4%, we will pause for a time. Whether or not that's a pause to go higher or a pause to continue to hold that level on an ongoing basis, that's where my thought process is. Steve, inside baseball, if we've got China with subpar China growth, the dynamic of exports minus imports – how does that change and what does that mean for Chairman Powell? 
Well, again, that comes right back to the currency story because it's the supply chain dynamic. You have a slower global GDP environment. Clearly, what's happening in Europe is creating a wider GDP output gap globally. You have a strong currency, which will allow us to import those products on a more on a more competitive basis, which will wind up dampening domestic inflationary pressures. And then you wind up with where does the services dominate over the goods portion of the equation? And I think yeah. this is the reason why inflation is going to come down, whether it'll get as quickly as the Fed would like to see back to their target or not. I think it'll get there. I think it'll get there probably in 2024. I don't think it'll get there in 2023. Steve, my first exercise this morning was to look at the Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index for the United States and for Europe and to note back over 30 years that this is the first time they've diverged so sharply. Now, obviously, there's a war in Ukraine, which is uh, uh, dealt to this. What does Bailey say to Powell or Powell say to Bailey on this immense transatlantic divide? Well, I mean, I, I think you know, the, the situation is the reverse of what we experienced in the 1970s, where the um, you know, Federal Reserve Chairman at the time, Paul Volcker, came back from an IMF meeting uh, and was forced to change monetary policy abruptly and cause, you know, one of the worst macro recessions, inflation recessions we've seen in, in our history. And I think all of the problems on the uh, currency side of the equation are really European problems. Um, and Europe has to address its issues. We can't fix its problem for them. Uh, and that's pretty much the same message that, you know, Paul Volcker got uh, in reverse uh, when he came back from the IMF meeting in 1979, which was basically, you have a problem with your currency. That's why your currency is going down. You have to fix your problem. And I think Powell has to push it right back on them. You've got a problem. You have to fix it. We can't fix it for you. And this is the different kind of FX war, Lisa, we've been talking about through much of this year. This is a big problem for Europe. And it's kind of strange because 10 years ago, this is exactly what they were trying to engineer, a weaker euro. They couldn't get one. They couldn't buy one. And now they've got one, a dramatically weaker euro at a time that they arguably don't want one. Absolutely. Importing inflation. How much, though, is this also a problem for the U.S.? And we haven't really talked about that, John, but this was something that you had discussed earlier in terms of the Edyard Denny note, which is how much of a pressure will this be on the balance sheets of companies that sell into Europe that have to deal with the headwinds from a stronger dollar? I don't think people have gained that out sufficiently. Well, the multinationals are going to have a problem, aren't they? But that's a corporate profit story what it means for the broader economy. The other issue that we've got here as well, Steve, Tom asked an important question. What does Governor Bailey say to Chairman Powell? Governor Bailey is seeing economic weakness right now in a more pronounced way than Chairman Powell is. And Governor Bailey hasn't seen the year-over-year peak in inflation. You've got him forecasting something close to 13%. You've got City saying it might be 18%. Steve, isn't that the bigger difference right now? The transatlantic divide is that the U.S. may be able to take some very, very small amount of comfort from this idea. We might have seen peak year-over-year -year inflation. For Europe and the U.K., is it still in their future? Well, again, this comes down to the fact that you remember the way we broke the back of inflation here was not just a monetary policy scenario. You know, the supply side revolution failed in terms of many things. But by breaking the back of labor through firing air traffic controllers, uh, we did a lot in terms of changing the labor market dynamic, which was our problem back then. So, again, you have to push the blame back just not on central bankers. Central bankers have to push blame back on politicians and say, you have to correct what you've done from a policy standpoint that has put us into this position. And it is your responsibility now to take the steps that are necessary. You can't expect central banks to solve all of the world's problems. Steve Rusciuto of Mizzou. Steve, thank you, sir.
The character of surveillance is simply we want to talk to the best people we can find. And we're honored when they come on on short notice. He interrupts his morning with Standard Charter Bank, their global head of G10 FX research. Stephen Englander joins us on your foreign exchange space. Steve, let me cut to the chase. What is the character, the nature of this historic bout of euro weakness? Well, I agree that it's largely uh, the natural gas story. I mean, you've seen them in, in recent days and recent weeks move uh, pretty much together with the euro. Uh, there is a broader global story that the market is panicking about what uh, Fed Chair Powell will say at Jackson Hole. And so, you know, euro has two uh, strikes against it, and which is why it went through parity so quickly. Steve, has the ECP got a role to play here? Um, you know, like in a Greek tragedy, there's just not that much that they can do. There's destiny that's approaching. Um, you know, the economy is weak. The, you know, when we talk about supply chain disruptions, we, we're not getting our exercise bikes. When they talk about it, they're not able to heat their homes. Um, that's really weighing on uh, sentiment in the euro. And the ECB doesn't have a tool to address it. The UK inflation numbers last week kind of, you know, I think led people in the market to say, why is Europe different and what can ECB do about it? And and the market, then, well, you see the way sterling is trading and euro is trading. The market's really punishing currencies that belong to central banks that have an inflation problem, but are really ambivalent about how they're going to approach it. Steve, how do you think they should approach it? What's the optimal way to approach the situation the UK is in at the moment, the situation the ECB is in? It's it's a very tough situation. I, I think that when so much is supply shocks, you you know if you're a central bank, you want to try and smooth your response. Um, the you know when you don't know what the duration of the supply shock is going to be, you're really uh, working in the dark. So I think they'll probably hike less than they should next year. If you know they come out of the winter and the energy situation is more clear, they'll probably hike faster, and that could actually give the euro some some legs in 2023. But this year, I think it's moving very cautiously. Stephen, you were talking about how supply chain disruptions have caused the people in the U.S. to worry about when they get their exercise equipment, uh, but in Europe, worried about how to heat your homes. At what point does the U.S. start to experience something more similar to the European angst? And this goes to this idea of divergence, how far the U.S. economy can diverge from the European fate. Well, in, insofar as it's related to a particular commodity as natural gas, that divergence can extend for a long time. Um, we might have to pay more for our energy, but we're, we're going to have it. Um, I think the you know European situation, if it's a very cold winter, and if the you know accommodation to increase <coughs> supply uh, doesn't occur, it, it could happen. You know, it could be an extended divergence. It's not our baseline, but it, it certainly is a risk. If there is an extended divergence, what does that mean for how disruptive dollar strength could become if it could escalate beyond where people are currently expecting? Well, you know, you're seeing different currencies react differently. Like, you know, Aussie Kiwi last week, you know, they've done poorly like everybody else, not so terribly. Um, they don't have that kind of exposure. You have the yen that's done reasonably well. Uh, again, you know, they, they're benefiting from oil prices going down. You know, the natural gas situation isn't as dire for them. I, I, I think it's horses for horses. And then you have a set of currencies like, you know, Mexico, Brazil, some of the EM currencies where interest rates are high. So there's a buffer against Fed 
hawkishness. So I don't think, you know, I, I think if the Fed is hawkish, it's going to be a broad dollar move. We, we think it's going to be limited. Um, but, you know, I think there are different, um, you know, circles of currencies that will respond differently depending on their vulnerabilities and in some cases their strengths. Steve, if you had to take a bet on the next 3% on euro dollar, higher or lower, weaker, stronger, where would you place it? I, I think the risk is to the downside. Um, but if you were asking me that question in January, I'd probably say to the upside. Steve, awesome to catch up. Steve Englander of Standard Chartered. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. On the fracture of international relations in Europe and the unspoken, Tina Fordham joins us right now, founder and geopolitical strategist at Fordham Global uh, Foresight. I, I, I look, Tina, at where we are and the bombing in Moscow and all that, and there seems to be an unraveling. In our world, it is the par parabola of energy prices. In your world, it's something like Ms. Maloney in Italy with not fascist, but certainly very austere tendencies like what we see in Hungary. How unsettled is Europe given the energy price overlay? Well, Tom, you've highlighted some of the, the themes that are interwoven, really, in the, in the global political risk outlook, where those high energy prices you mentioned, of course, are uh, being driven by the continuation of, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which shows no sign of abating, plus the longstanding uh, Kremlin policy of, of intervening in, in European politics. It's not illegal, first of all, for European political parties to actually take funding from from other countries. And, um, and furthermore, this is long documented. Orban's, uh, Viktor Orban's connection to the Kremlin, uh, Matteo Salvini, who's on the record today from the Lega Nord party in Italy, saying uh, that perhaps sanctions against Russia aren't working. So while policymakers and markets are, you know, rightly focused on the kind of harrowing inflation outlook, um, which is taking up the reaction function and the attention, these these cracks um, are are really concerning, and the September elections in Italy are going to to put a prime minister in office who um, is uh, uncomfortably close to fascist tendencies and um, with you know connections to Russia. I mean, the shock of the pricing 
is so tangible. There's got to be my, my reading of history here, and it may be 1938 on to whatever. You can pick your point of gloom. But the fact is this pricing leads to international relation and political adjustment. What would you suggest that adjustment will be? Well, at the, at the first level, it's going to lead to enormous household distress. And I see that through the lens of what's happening here in the UK with the leadership contest for the, for the Tory party and the talk about the energy price cap. You know, we're talking about households seeing a quintupling in their energy bills, a normal household paying, you know, over a thousand pounds a month for electricity. Um, it's, it's a shock that is not going to be able to be absorbed. So first of all, there's going to, I think there's going to be mass non-payment. Um, and if you look at the dynamics of the Tory leadership contest, it's all about getting those 160,000 Conservative Party voters. It's a different platform. Um, so this government is going to be reactive. Uh, by contrast, Macron in France has been more proactive, saying it's basically the patriotic duty to kind of deal with it. Um, and we have to stay strong in the in the face of, of Russia. I think that Europe's resolve when it comes to supporting Ukraine will continue, um, but it, there's going to be a lot of pain. This is going to hurt. And you asked what the kind of policy response is going to be. People look at the pandemic and they're going to expect government support. How we get there is very hard to say, um, but the public won't be able to absorb price increases of, of these proportions. Tina, you went where I wanted to go, which is you said that the resolve will remain strong to support Ukraine, to uh, battle Russia, and that the European people will continue with that message. When does that fray, especially as power costs rise and there is an increasing chorus of people saying perhaps some of the sanctions and some of the measures taken against Russia were as penalizing to the Western nations as anyone else? Well, I mean, it's, it's always a question, right, of what's the alternative? And um, there's no going back to Russia as an energy supplier. Um, those days are over. And the substitution of supply is already happening. Um, we are, however, looking at a, a very difficult uh, winter here, one that people aren't used to. You know, in the old days, at least you had a, a fireplace and you could chop firewood. Um, now it's central heating, uh, which means people are going to have to, to turn it off. So um, it's going to be incredibly difficult. But what you do see in Europe is an increasing sense that Ukraine has to win this conflict. Um, and uh, there isn't going to be a turning back from that. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that maintaining that position uh, of support and the sacrifice that it's going to entail for households means you have to accelerate the green transition. You've got to keep those nuclear power plants going, um, which is a huge turnaround for German policy. And that's happening rather quickly. Um, not quickly enough to alleviate pain this, this winter, um, but I think quickly enough. Uh, and, and again, we can't go back to, to Russia as a, as a dependence upon Russia as an energy supplier. They're not a dependable source. These are huge, huge changes we need to try and adapt to. Tina Fordham of Fordham Global Foresight. Lisa Bramwitz and Tom Keane with Mr. Rubenstein now. 
on a guy, David, John Doerr, Intel was 3,000 employees when he joined. It's now well over 100,000, even with the challenges uh, that they have. And it, what I find so interesting, David Rubenstein, is this is a guy that's lived the boom of the Young Turks of Silicon Valley, and now they have to make a generational shift. What did he say about the challenges of a generational shift in our tech wonders? Well, he did uh, incredible things in the internet era, and he was an early backer of Google and an early backer of Amazon. And as a result of that, he's been able to make recently the largest gift in Stanford's history, $1.1 billion to create a sustainability school. And that is the result of his very smart investment decisions during the internet era. Now he's focused on climate change, and that's his sole uh, investment focus as well. He's giving a lot of money philanthropically there, but also he's now making investments in all kinds of uh, companies that are likely to have some impact on climate change. What is he saying about the people that literally he birthed? I'm absolutely fascinated. The shift at Amazon, the shifts at Google, and on and on. How did he address this generational challenge of people who think they're different than Colgate Palmolive or John Deere? Well, clearly people in Silicon Valley who get money uh, from firms like Kleiner Perkins, John Doerr's firm, obviously have large egos and think that they're going to change the world. In some cases they do, in some cases they don't. Um, he's unusual in that he really, really spends an enormous amount of time trying to figure out how he can help these companies. He doesn't just give them money, but he's willing to work around the clock to make sure these companies succeed. And that's what he did with Amazon and Google and had a big impact on them. Now he's doing the same in the climate change era. And I would say that he was motivated to do this in part because when his daughter, one of his two daughters, watched Inconvenient Truth about the climate change problem, his daughter said to him, "You, your generation screwed up this country and screwed up the world. What are you going to do about fixing it? And so it motivated him to actually do something about it. And now that's what he's really dedicating the rest of his life to do. Over the past year, we've seen a little bit of a reversal in some of the efforts toward the greenification of the energy supply. We've seen a reversion back to coal, fossil fuels in the wake of some of the shortages and the, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Did he talk at all about the willingness to invest even more at a time when there is a more of a question about the importance of fossil fuels and not discounting them? Well, his view is we don't really have a choice. Right now, the planet is not going to be able to be survivable if we don't uh, make changes in the way we uh, generate energy for people on the face of the earth. So he doesn't really think there's a choice. He does recognize that because of the war in Ukraine, many people have uh, probably said, well, climate change is something we can worry about in the future, and we don't have to worry about conversion to renewable right now. But that's not his view. He thinks it's more urgent than ever, and he has a very elaborate plan how we can convert our uh, efforts now and using energy from carbon to uh, renewable sources. And he's quite passionate about it. And that comes through in the interview. The passion versus the profits. And that has been something that a lot of people have been trying to discern, especially with the ESG focus that hasn't always delivered in terms of the returns. How does he sort of parse this out? I understand the ideological drive that he has towards some of these causes, but where does he look for the returns to come? Well, remember, um, he's looking to back small companies that are going to grow into the Amazons and Googles in the climate change area. So when he backs a company, it's going to take four, five, six years or so before it might be apparent whether it's going to work or not. But he thinks we really don't have a choice because if we keep doing what we're doing, ultimately the planet won't be survivable. And so he's very passionate about it, more passionate than he probably right. was about 
the internet. David Rubenstein, in the day-to-day grind of David Rubenstein over the years, why doesn't Europe have a John Doerr? Why doesn't Asia have a John Doerr? And of course, the backdrop here is a debacle of SoftBank. But why is it just about America that we have a John Doerr? Well, clearly, America is more entrepreneurial, I think, than uh, Asia and more entrepreneurial than Europe. Uh, we have a much more bigger venture capital world than uh, either Europe or Asia. And I think John Doerr is the personification of, of what our venture capital world can do. It has a very talented people who've been trained as engineers, as, as John Doerr was, but now are committed to doing other things. And, you know, John Doerr is probably the best known of the venture capitalists in the, in the United States right now because of, of his success over the years. But there are many other people like him. And you're correct in pointing out there aren't similar people or not very many of them in Europe yeah. or, or in China. David, thank you so much. Congratulations on this important interview tonight. Thank 9 you. PM. David Rubenstein with Mr. Dorr of Kleiner uh, Perkins. Really looking forward to that. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.